to the International Bus Podcast brought to you by Wurpee. I am Tanya Faulkner, your co-host for today, and my other co-host is... Robert Rogi. I'm also here. And for today, um, our guest is Milisa Panic, but she told us we could call her Millie. So hello, Millie. Thanks for joining us today. So Millie is a product marketing manager at Taos, and she previously worked for Booking.com, where she was working in various roles as language specialist, translation coordinator, content and project manager. Hi, Millie. Hi, Tanya. Hi, Robert. Thank you for having me today. Did I pronounce it right? Yes, you did. Yes, yes it's it great. <laughs> Pretty good. I thought to help you out a little bit, but yeah, it was just perfect. All right. Well, it's good to have you on the show, Millie. <laughs> it well, nice to be here right so let's let's take things off uh just with taos then you know we know what taos does and what taos is um but maybe some of our listeners don't know about taos so we were wondering if you could start by just offering us like an overview of what taos does you know what your mission is what technologies you you make there what sort of people you work with just give us the whole overview sure yeah, for those who do, do not know, TAUS is, well, it's actually a really cool acronym for Translation Automation User Society. And, well, that the User Society part is basically how it all started. So TAUS has been around for almost 13 years now, and it really started off as a think tank. So as a platform in the uh, translation and localization industry for kind of people to come together, share their knowledge, share their experiences, and eventually share their data as well. So that was founded in 2005. And the first, so to say, product was the data cloud. So everything that was happening before that was a lot about getting together getting to Taos event, going to Taos events, understanding the industry, understanding the shared problems and the diver- so-called, we call them the diverging issues and trying to come up with solutions for them. So the first product was the data cloud. It's a large repository of bilingual data that is uh, well most commonly used for training empty engines. And then as well, the, as Taos was uh, developing, growing, getting more members because it's a it's a member organization. What we hearing more and more from the industry peers was that quality was a challenge. So not necessarily quality as such, but defining it, making sure that there is a standard that everyone in the industry follows, and making sure that that industry uh, peers have the ability to benchmark their own quality results. So measure the performance, understand it, and establish a baseline and benchmark. So that's um, that was a very clear problem statement that uh, uh, Taos wanted to jump right on. And uh, they've developed what is today known as the dynamic quality framework, so DQF. And that happened in 2012. I wasn't a part of Taos uh, back then. And then in 2015, because they wanted also to to make it not just widely available, but also integrated into the most commonly used CAT tools and translation management systems, they really went for the integrated solution so that it wouldn't really change much for the end user. They've developed what we know today as the quality dashboard. 
and the quality dashboard off offers this its uh, visualization dashboard of all the data that's collected through DQF plugins, and it visualizes them in a, a set of comprehensive graphs that can be used to to derive business intelligence to make informed decisions about how you will drive your localization forward. So that is kind of a an A to Z story about Taos. So we continue to organize events. We continue to promote dynamic quality framework. We see a very, very an increasing adoption of it. And it's just really nice to be a part of all of that. That sounds fascinating. Before we jump right onto the topics that you just mentioned, I guess especially the quality part, can you just tell us a little bit about what your role is at the moment now? So you could actually say that I'm a... I'm a translator in a way. So my role is to basically communicate all day long, but uh, also to translate the product uh, and its benefits, so Tao's product and its benefits and the membership benefits into real value for our members. So I get on calls to onboard new members. I do all kinds of demos of our products. Yeah, I'm basically... Uh, the go-to person uh, when you need to understand what Taos has to offer. Right, cool. That sounds interesting. Yeah. So what kind of uh, industries belong to Taos and are using this LQA stuff? And uh, like, are, are there some industries that are more represented than others uh, with Taos? Well, that's a difficult question. So I believe we were just looking at some data recently. So the IT industry, the software industry is very big, for example, but we have really uh, members from all domains, so to say. Um, we also have uh, members from the buyer side and the provider side, so LSPs, as well as an academic, so a wide pool of academic members. I kind of thought that maybe there was a tilt towards IT just because it's it's pretty technical stuff. But of course, a lot of other industries can benefit from a Taos membership. And I guess for you, it's just translating the value to them and, and trying to reach them, I suppose. Yeah. So indeed, it's the, the IT sector is, it was kind of the biggest, especially at first. We like to say that we had... 40 founding members, so the first 40 members who kind of got on board, and there were indeed large IT companies, and they formed, the, so to say, the base. But yeah, but now um, it's just expanding into every domain. So manufacturing, life sciences, you name it. Mm -hmm. So if we talk about LQA, what are the factors that play into LQA becoming such a hot topic? I mean, it, it is definitely a hot topic tells us all about it. So what do you think, yeah, what are the factors that play into that? So, I mean, there's my opinion and there's also what, uh, what kind of, I think what's an interesting story is what really shaped uh, the dynamic quality framework. And so the factors that played a role there were, uh, were actually, well, first the fact that there was, so if you look at the, the existing quality standards, what you often can see is that it's, a static approach so it's kind of like a one-size-fits-all approach it doesn't really take into consideration the different types of contents different different types of audiences different types of well so the, just the purpose of the text and how it actually can so how the approach could change over time so that was one of the 
well, like a, basically a problem statement that Taos saw. And then the, the other thing is when you have a standard, what is the, the kind of key thing for a standard is that it is a consistently applied across industries, across users. And that wasn't necessarily the case because when you have a standard that's used, let's say, offline, what you often see is that it's heavily modified in the application process to a certain workflow, to a certain process that an organization internally has, to the needs of their clients, etc. So... Kind of yeah. like what happened with XLeaf, right? Like uh, there was a standard, but then everybody's XLeaf ended up being totally different. Yeah, exactly. So, and you know, like at the end, you claim that you're compliant, but it's not really true anymore. I believe Lisa QA is also another good example. And it became, if I'm not mistaken, obsolete uh, a year or two ago for a very similar reason. So yeah, so that was the, the main challenge, but also the fact that so, yeah, you often hear that how localization industry is fragmented. That also goes for the, there's so much technology out there. And that's really good because everyone needs to have the, uh, well, the ability and uh, the option to choose for the one that fits their need the best. But that eventually doesn't allow you to compare your productivity or quality tracking across your whole production. So that's something that, for example, DQF does, you can track the whole workflow across different capsules. And what's really nice and neat about it is that it's all automatic, real time. So yeah, so I think, so that's actually what drew me to Taos last year. Well, that, that vision, you know, of, well, having sort of a central place, but a decentralized way of managing quality. So a central place when everything flows in that gives you the ability to set your own baseline, but also benchmark against others to really understand where you stand to really measure your own performance. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm wondering specifically, when we say dynamic, what are some of the actual configurations that you can make? Like you mentioned that with the static approach, for example, you can't differentiate between different types of content or different audiences. And in the dynamic approach, then, like, can you ex give us some examples of configurations that you can use with the DQF stuff that you're working yeah, so, on? So the DQF actually consists of, of a bit. So it's a set of tools. It's not just one tool. First, we have uh, a sort of um, we have an online tool that so we call it a content profiler that uh, allows you to uh, well by filling out the relevant details, it, it allows you it kind of gives you a suggestion of what is the best quality methodology for your type of content, your type of audience, etc. And then once you go into the, so the actual, so working in production with EQF, that's also something that you would define in your settings. And then you would get a very, very detailed reports on how different content types are doing against one another. Uh, you also can... What's really nice about uh, the metrics is that you, so like I said, we run this uh, sort of tracking on the entire process. So we track not just the correction phase and the review phase, we track also the translation phase. So we track what happens there, what's the, uh, what are the, the segment origin types, 
So yeah, where the pre-translated content is coming from, and then we we can actually see, okay, this is how well a language is doing when it comes to the average uh, words per hour. Uh, If a match rate is of a certain level, so yeah, and then we also track the review phase. So we, in the review phase, we track so the number of corrections that were made. We track also the the errors that were found and annotated in the text, as well as the severe their severity levels. And this is flexible. Let's say this is well a flexible type of a setting. So you can give different weights depending on the type of the, the content that you're doing. On the you know so what is the final result the result that you're trying to achieve? You can adjust these weights and allow say more or less errors in the text. So those kind of things. Did you say this was with the DQF or with the quality dashboard? So that's what you what you get visualized on the quality dashboard. Right. So DQF, okay. Yeah, DQF is the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So you have the, the content profiler, a set of guidelines, uh, an error typology that is the backbone for the review process. So we have publicly available API and plugins for commonly used capitals and translation management systems. So we plug into them. We EQF runs, so the tracking runs in the background during the translation and the review phase. And all this data is then posted on the quality dashboard. So you get to, even if you're not, you know, if, you, if you're not that tech savvy and you can just go into a dashboard, everything. So all of the reports are just visualized and laid out uh, there for you. Hmm. Sounds like a dream. Uh... Yeah. Hey, as you know, we like to keep things mostly non-commercial around here. And we like to just stick to interviewing the guests about fascinating subjects. But we would like to take a moment to mention a little bit about Wordbee Translator. Wordbee Translator is the translation management system developed by Wordbee over the last 10 years. So we are celebrating 10 years now. It's all in one system, so you can manage projects. It also has linguistic tools. It has tools for finance, business analytics, and it's been around for 10 years, so it does pretty much anything you want. Before working for Wordbee, I also used Wordbee Translator. One of my favorite things about it was actually the invoicing because it made it really easy to manage supplier invoices, create them, and just not have to deal too much with the financial side of things. But other customers appreciate other things, like for example, it's a native cloud technology, so it's really collaborative. You know, you can keep track of what's going on in there at uh, any, any moment in your project. It's easy to set up different job assignment methods. You know, you can check your stats at any time. You can see how your project managers are performing. You can see how your translators are doing. And yeah, it does pretty much everything you want. It ends up fitting your organization like a glove, as we say. So that was just a word about Wordy Translator. Now, without further ado, back to the podcast. So about the content profilers, so does that use like text analytics to do like things like topic detection? Like what does the content profiler do? Because it sounds kind of cool. So the content profiler is actually one of the oldest tools. It's a very basic tool. So it's based on human input. So you would uh, just have to input what type of content. It's just a suggest- so a tool that suggests the methodology to use. It's, ah, okay. not, it's not an automated Mm-hmm. Right, right. Oh, that, well, that could be a cool idea for the future. Use some of this fancy text analytics to make the content profiler automatic or something. 
So sure. this is like you would use that during the project and even afterwards to measure your results. What do you think can be done before a project to guarantee quality? So for quality, I think what's really key is you often hear people talking about skills and, you know, people with right skills. And there is a lot of noise around like the, you know, setting up your recruitment right. But I think it's also the, the skills that you train people on, right? So really having the that offer out there. So, well, I've often seen in this role and also before is that technology kind of runs ahead of all of us and we are just trying to kind of catch up or catch up with it. But really having a, like a go-to place to get the right training, to get the right information, to understand so all the technologies that are out there, I think that's really key in getting. So building your skill set, that's key to, well, both for buyers, providers, that's something to invest in, not just uh, for on a personal level, but that's something for large organizations to really, really look into mm -hmm. these days. Yeah, it's difficult to onboard translators, I think. Also, it seems like it's not like there's a, a place where you can go and see like reviews or ratings of all the translators that you're looking at. It's pretty difficult to know if the person you're talking to is really pro or not. Yeah, that's actually, I mean, just quickly back to DQF. I know that's a bit of a, so I'm derailing it a little bit now because you're asking about what uh, yeah, how to approach things before they go into production, before they... So it's very hard to know whether you're hiring the right person or not. But I think it's like continuous measurement. So before you hire them, when you hire them, and when they're, when they're doing their work is really... That's where the value and sort of kind of that intelligent onboarding lies. Mm -hmm. What do you think smaller businesses can do to improve their LQA? Well, an easy answer would be, and this is, this is like the sales side of me, it's just integrate with DQF. So whether it's DQF, there are other things out there, whether it's DQF or not, I think the key is really measure continuously, fine tune your measurements, understand really, well, first actually define what are you measuring and why are you measuring that? How does that help your business? And then just measure, iterate, measure, improve. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's key. And just actively use the LQA models out there. They're there for a reason. And yeah. Can you tell us some of the metrics that you suggest uh, measuring for LQA? Personally, I would suggest at a distance, for example, it's not necessarily a, um, it's not a kind of a, like a, an oracle, but it does at least give you an idea of the effort that went into post-editing of pre-translated content. Actually, that's something that we will be looking into uh, soon in the future. I think there is a correlation between productivity and quality. And that would be really something to dig deeper into and understand it and get some good insights on it. So oh, interesting. if someone's already doing this, that, yeah, I would love to hear about it. Is that like more productivity means less quality or is it like more productivity means more quality? I think this, so both are, well, the first one is uh, the usual assumption, right? So more productivity or less quality. 
And I personally don't think that's necessarily true. And that's again, so it's definitely not true for all content types. It definitely is not true for all purposes. So it would just be nice to, um, that's like I said, if someone is already, I know that that's something that we will be looking at in the future. If someone is already doing it, I would love hearing about it. Hmm. Yeah, that would be a very interesting thing to take a look at. You know, because it talks about focus, concentration, you know, what kind of headspace the translator is in when they're working. Yeah, I I don't think it will be the same for any language. It will definitely not be the same for all language pairs. It will definitely not be the same for content types, different content types. I suspect you will get this kind of a, you know, a linear correlation or a connection there. But I think that's definitely something to look into because it does impact the way organizations are set up, the way they organize their business. It has a huge impact. So I would be very interested interested to get some sort of a results on that. Hmm. You mentioned continuous measurement. At some point, uh, I think you kind of hinted towards stuff that happens like during the project and not necessarily before or after. And uh, well, that would be really cool if you could like put a, the translator is working and there is a sign there that turns green and it says you are productive enough. (laughs) (laughs) Or, hey, you got to focus, man. You are not focused enough. Your quality (laughs) is going to tank. So what are you doing for, you know, in terms of during the project? Like what's going on in the moment transairs are working, project managers are managing? So currently we do not, so Taos doesn't do much during the project. It really is up to, because at the same time, I have to, again, make a quick disclaimer here. We're really neutral in that sense. Well, in every sense, and mm-hmm. we are very impartial in the industry. So the mission that I... I don't think I've mentioned it at the very beginning, but I will now, is to really help everyone. So we are th- that kind of the body. So help everyone advance there, what we call the intelligent and hopefully for everyone global content delivery. But yeah, we are not necessarily, we're not making decisions for anyone. And we are not doing anything more in the project than just tracking the whole process and making sure that the data is available on the dashboard for anyone who wants to take a look at it. Um, well, that, that makes sense. I mean, because yeah. to do more than that would require more integrations with translation technology providers, I suppose, and that would be costly and, and difficult to develop. Yeah. So also to quickly go back to the pre-translation or pre-production part, we do offer trainings and just to make sure that the end user is really equipped with knowledge and with everything that they need to, well, perform and outperform and understand the technologies and why they're in place. We have just recently launched a new e-learning platform and that, so basically to engage really with the translators, with the reviewers, with all of those people out there who are or are not afraid or of neural machine translation, afraid of different, let's say, performance trackers, etc. We really want to engage. We want to show them the benefits. Yeah, we want to help them deliver their best work as well. That sounds like a good plan. <laughs> you mentioned before that it's like it can be really tough to onboard new translators. And I read in one of your recent articles that like you were talking about the gig economy. So my question is, first of all, can you just explain to our listeners 
real quick what the gig economy is, what it means. And then I guess my next question would be, aren't all translators sort of gig translators? Okay, that's a very nice question. So let me first explain the gig economy and well, or the gig model. So a gig is just a gig. It's a piece of work that anyone could do with the right skill set. And the gig economy is then an economic model that allows for organizations to employ individual external contractors instead of permanent full-time employees. And so based on the gigs, based on the tasks that they have in their pipeline. So that's, I think, in a nutshell, what gig economy means. Uh, So a lot of times it's sort of a synonym, if I may say, for the crowdsourcing. Gig economy also uses the crowd. I think that's there's a little bit of of an overlap, well, more than a bit of an overlap there. So assigning tasks continuously, it's an always-on approach to the right person that's out there, that's available at that moment, etc. So, yeah, all translators or aren't all translators gig translators? So I would say it's a very difficult question. I would say not necessarily just because you, and this is something that I've kind of been struggling with lately, is what you see now with the gig economy rising, you see that there is this sort of a, also the what we call the boutique translation are on the rise as well. So translators that they, they, they pick their own work, they really manage their own availability. And it kind of, there is some sort of a feeling of a gap between the two. Whereas I think actually it's not that every translator is, a gig translator, I would much rather uh, say that every translator can be a boutique translator, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, every translator can pick the right work for them and the right availability. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think this might really just open up. I might just open up a can of worms and start yeah. questions, but do, yeah. Maybe. Well, I would offer a competing definition, I guess. First of all, I would say that crowdsourcing isn't synonymous with the gig economy. Because to me, crowdsourcing means it's almost like an assignment model, right? Where you're assigning the job to the first translator in the crowd that's ready to jump on it. Whereas, you know, with gigs, you know, I would say if you're a freelance translator and you've had this client for five, 10 years, you do a job for them once or twice a month, I would call those gigs too. And Mm -hmm. to me, I would say the difference is basically, you know, with the gig economy, you are sort of summing up uh, enough gigs so that you can have a monthly income, but you're not guaranteed anything. So you're basically on your own, you know, you don't have uh, any rights as an employee. And so even in my mind, the boutique shops or boutique translators or translators that are highly specialized, I would put them all under the label gigs and then say that some gigs are better than others, but that's that's just how I look at it. Yeah, but it's kind of interesting. So would you agree that crowdsourcing then is like an assignment model within the larger umbrella of gig? Yeah, no, that, that's why I said like it's often kind of put together as a like as two synonyms. They both use what we call the crowd, but the models are slightly different. Yes. 
Interesting. Okay. Well, now we have two competing views. Normally, I just ask questions in this podcast, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to have a different view, yeah. though. And I mean, it it kind of makes sense if you like. Well, it depends. If you see the gig like as a short-term kind of task, then I guess all freelance translators are sort of gig translators, whereas yeah. in-house translators. I don't know. It seems like they are only considered gig translators if you have really long gig, you know. But well, I see what yeah. So I see what you mean. <laughs> yeah, I see. I think a gig can go on for years. You know, yeah. the difference is it's like if you're sending an invoice every month, then it's a gig, and if you're getting a like a regular paycheck or whatever, then it's a job. Yeah. That's what I would say. But, well, you know, the word gig is has negative consequence or connotations right now, I think, uh, especially with Uber. People are like, no, I don't want gigs. I, I don't want to be part of the gig economy. But well, uh, interesting I, if, mm-hmm. if, sorry, if someone had actually like defined the length of a gig. Yeah, that's yeah. a blog post for Taos or for, or for, <laughs> or for, for Word sure. B. <laughs> How long does a gig have to be to before it stops being a gig? <laughs> okay, no, but um, back to the question. So how does the gig economy influence um, quality and how, how does it influence quality assurance? Another difficult one. I have a quick answer that uh, might, again, spark a discussion or, uh, well, from what I've seen so far, it's um, it impacted in the sense that more time is spent on quality. Quality kind of becomes the focus because the work is done and it's done fast. We're talking about very quick uh, turnovers. But yeah, and then the quality is in focus from talking to a few members. From what I understood is that there are more, there are now multiple quality steps. So more than usual just to ensure that the results are right. So that's a very, very short, how I think the impact kind of of a gig economy on quality has shown itself so far. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and, and maybe it's uh, partly the explosion of content, like content's exploding, the industry is growing far faster than, for example, the GDP in Europe. And, and they, you know, we're shoveling in more technology and more translators, and maybe things just sort of uh, get out of control. Yeah, and that as well. I think it's now quality, the LQA is the quality assurance. So it's not anymore the quality control, but what I often feel mm. um, is happening is indeed this kind of urge to really keep everything under control because yeah what the especially within gig economy it's the human touch or the human interaction is minimal so you don't have you might get feedback but that's also very well it's in a digital format you you rarely see the the it's a person x that's kind of how it played out do you have some sort of process that you would follow if you were in the gig industry or like hiring a gig translator for assuring quality? Uh, ouch. Never thought of that. Um, <laughs> but mainly because uh, I'm not necessarily in the gig economy. Um, again, so now I'm falling into the trap of what I just said, uh, that I would probably also just introduce more touch points to control the the whole thing. So I think what's kind of crucial in any recruitment process, but also for the key economy, is the right selection. So whether that's an automated selection process, whether it's a process whereby you get a call by the recruiter, but really so hiring 
So either really developing very, very smart algorithms that do automatic sort of scanning or uh, hiring very experienced recruiters, because it's always a, a two-way street. I see the responsibility on both ends, so to say, and kind of a, like a multi-lag selection process. Yeah, we did this panel discussion recently, and it was pretty interesting because the uh, localization manager from BlaBlaCar, um, her name was uh, Sylvia Griso, she was talking about how they recruit people. And, uh, you know, they, they came up with this really unique formula where basically they, they recruit translators who really love their product and who write to them about it or apply for, for a translation job on their own website. And that's exclusively how they find people. So I don't know, maybe different organizations need to try to identify what kind of trick they can use to find really talented uh, linguists. Yeah. Do you maybe know a bit more about how do they actually identify the passion for the product as a part of their um, recruitment process? Uh, can you remember what she said, Tanya? I'm not sure. We didn't go into detail that much about it. She just mentioned that their translators usually reach out to them. Yeah, and that they love blah blah car. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so they must ask or something, or you know, maybe the people that reach out to them on their webpage uh, tend to be, I don't know, more interested in blah blah car or something. Um, no, yeah, it would be very interesting to kind of to get a better understanding of you know how do you identify the love for a product. Yeah, because so, for example, so as you know, I, I worked at Booking.com and um, I think I only now, after st having stopped working for Booking, have tried everything that Booking has to offer, including the Booking Assistant. So everyone at the time was using Booking. So all of the translators or language specialists, of course, knew about Booking, had a passion for at least uh, some of the Booking products. But yeah, I think that's a very, uh, it's, it's just one of the aspects of... Um, Sorry, do you think it's essential to be passionate about what you're translating? I think it's essential to be passionate about anything you do in life. So not just what you're translating. Good point. Good point. Uh, so I think you, there are days when you do your best work just post-editing because it's one, it's one of those days. There are other days when you really, um, I mean, so that's, I'm speaking out of the, out of personal experience. Uh, there are days when you really wake up and you're thinking, oh, that book that has been laying on my desk for a couple of days and that I've read three times by now, I'm going to start translating it today. And I'm going to, you know, and you know that you're going to do a great job just because you're in that mindset. But I think it's the skills, it's the interest, it's, it's the passion, it's the con continuous learning as well. So well, I, I think, frankly, that's one of the challenges of translation management systems. And, you know, the sort of not my definition of gig economy, but your definition where sort of, you know, talking a lot about crowdsourcing, a lot of uh, automated assignments and that kind of stuff, like, you know, putting that distance between translators and the people who are buying it, um, you know, the removal of human interactions can, I think, lessen that passion and sort of get in the way. You know, I know translators who, who are more in that boutique area yeah. that you were discussing. And some of them really don't like to be a part of any kind of automated thing because they can't get the energy that they need from that. Yeah. So I, I don't know. This, this human side is a challenge for anyone, I think, that's building management products in the translation industry. Yeah. And I think also just, you know, it's a challenge for the people management in the, in the industry as well.
Yeah, totally, totally. Because yeah. I, I think organizations could do a lot more, just like you said, with people management. You know, I, I don't know what I mean by that exactly, but uh, <laughs> just taking care of people, taking care of people that you're working with, you know. And making sure that they get that drive and they get that energy, they get that kick from, uh, well, if not necessarily, if the content is repetitive today, that they get that there is some sort of a, that's something in their day that gives them that kick. Yeah, exactly. It um, sounds like it could be a whole podcast in itself. Yeah, well, we should build a kick feature in WordBee. <laughs> <laughs> the kick feature is coming up in the WordBee pipeline um, <laughs> so that uh, we can all get our kicks and be uh, motivated. <laughs> well, there you go. I'm glad that... Uh, I was kidding yeah, about the, the kick feature. Just, no, I know, I know. <laughs> okay. And I'm, I'm now thinking about, you know, like how uh, a blog post to write and uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a cool idea. You know, there's things that, that could be done on this human side that aren't maybe getting done. Um, I, I'm Now I'm thinking about Slack. You know, it would be cool just to get nice, cute messages in a Slack integration from your translation buyer or something. I don't know. Yeah. Something nice. Okay. Well, I think we've covered just about everything. Do we have any more, any more questions, Tanya, that we should go into? We've done really great. And so... If you don't have any last thoughts, I think we should wrap this up. Cool. Well, uh, thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, I think it was it was a really nice interview. We're really happy to hear from Taos. You know, Taos is doing really cool things, and and we we do appreciate certain things about Taos, like how you're impartial, and um, you know the way that that you guys go about doing your stuff. So it's super cool to have you on. Yeah, I'm like super super thankful for you for your invitation. And it was great talking to you. And kudos to Werby. And uh, yeah, as I said, this podcasts are amazing. So um, I'll not only make sure to listen to them, but uh, to actually, you know, like them. Yeah, <laughs> or share them somewhere. Share them, yes. Yes, that goes to all the listeners oh, too. Share the podcast. Share, share it on something. So shares get more more points than likes. Okay, cool. Yeah, cool. shares are better. Yeah, per like, <laughs> yeah, sharing's cool. You know, another thing, just while we're while we're at it here for the listeners, yeah. you know, most of our listeners are actually in the United States, and I think that's because podcasts in Europe are not. Uh, you know, it's not like everybody is on, you know, the whole podcast train here. But basically, you know, if, if you're listening to this, uh, maybe you're playing it in the, you know, right directly on our webpage or you're playing it in your Twitter feed. It's like you can just download an app for a podcast, just search for it in your app store, and then you can search us there. We should appear in all the different applications and you can subscribe and then you can just, you know, every time there's a new episode that comes out, you can just see it there. So that's that's what we recommend. If if you are listening and you think, yeah, I kind of like this podcast thing, how can I keep track of it? That that would be your best way. All right. Well, yeah. then thank you, Amelie, uh, for joining us. It was really a blast talking to you. Yay! <laughs> Thanks. Likewise. Thank you.